Well, do please uh, turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 1, page 3 uh, in the Church Bibles as we uh, just to really try to conclude and wrap up this series looking at chapters 1, 2 and 3 of Genesis that we've been doing since um, January now. There's something strangely enigmatic about life, uh, about human beings, about the world we live in. I'm sure you've noticed it in yourself. You you can't miss it in the news. On the one hand, we are capable of acts of such loving kindness, of of creativity and inventiveness for good. Just look at the way people have pulled together since the Japanese earthquake and tsunami last week. And yet on the other hand, we are capable of such cruelty and destructiveness. We can be so evil. The events that are unfolding in Libya have demonstrated that with Colonel Gaddafi turning on his own people. But this strange mix is not just out there in the world. I see it in here, in my own life, all the time. At times I can be kind. At times I'm willing to put myself out for others. Uh, But all too often the opposite is true. I have thoughts that are vindictive and wicked. I can be so cruel with my words and selfish with my time. There is a strange contradiction in our lives and throughout the world. And when we stand back and think about it, it's a tension that bothers us. It certainly confuses us when we, when we try to make sense of the world. And that's where these early chapters of Genesis have been so helpful as we've looked at them over these last weeks. For they explain to us why the world is as it is, why we are as we are. And when we began looking at Genesis chapter 1 back in January, we saw that God created a good world It is, of course, the constant refrain through the chapter. Do you remember it? Let me read from Genesis chapter 1, verse 9. God said, Let the water under the sky be gathered to one place and let dry ground appear. And it was so. God called the dry ground land and the gathered waters he called seas and God saw that it was good. There's our phrase. It comes at the end of verse 12. And God saw that it was good. And it comes at the end of verse 18 and verse 21 and verse 25 until we come to chapter 1, verse 31. And God saw all that he made and it was very good. God created a very good world and there are days when we see just how very good that world is. When you throw back your curtains on a glorious spring morning, the sun comes streaming through the windows. You hear the birds singing. And then as you you step out into the garden, there's a freshness about the new day. The daffodils are blooming and the squirrels are playing in the trees. It's a wonderful world. And when you meet together with friends or family for a relaxing afternoon in the summer, with the sun on your back, you take a picnic down to the river, you enjoy a carefree afternoon of conversation, and as you eat the food in your hamper, the variety of flavours explode on your taste buds. It's a wonderful world. Or when you hear a piece of music or or someone extends great kindness towards you, you find your heart singing with thankfulness. It's good to be alive. You watch a wildlife programme and see the gracefulness of dolphins and the spectacular scenery of towering mountains and majestic seas. You play sport and enjoy the tussle of competition. You fall in love and, well, simply everything seems perfect. It's a wonderful world. God made a good world. But what made it so very good was being in relationship with God himself. That was the end point of creation. Do you remember when we read it? Chapter 2, verse 1. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. 
And by the seventh day, God had finished the work he'd been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. And God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on, on it, he rested from all the work of creation that he'd done. And remember when we looked at this way back, that the, the word rest there speaks of being at rest with God. It speaks of us being made to be in perfect relationship with him. And in Genesis chapter 2, we saw a picture of how perfect it is to be in perfect relationship with God. There's Adam in the Garden of Eden, verse 8, and what a splendid garden it is. Verse 9, it's full of trees, all kinds of trees, fruit trees producing pears and plums and peaches and pomegranates, and that's just a few that begin with P, as Julian Hardiman put it. And end of verse 9, there in the middle of the garden, amongst all these trees, is the tree of life. This is a place of everlasting life a place of life and blessing shown in verse 12 through the river running through the garden and out into the world, life-giving water bringing life and blessing wherever it flows. And this is a beautiful garden. It is rich in every way. See verse 12, it's full of gold and pearls and onyx. It's a place where Adam was able to work, verse 15, and enjoy the animals, verse 19, and of course enjoy Eve. Ah, Eve. Eve, the moment that she that she walked on to the planet, the moment that he set his eyes on her, his heart began to sing and he burst into song in verse 23. This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She should be called woman for she was taken out of man. The Garden of Eden was such a good place where mankind was at rest, at peace with himself because he was at peace with his God. And again, that is the big point, really. All the way through chapter 2, God is described as the Lord. In chapter 1, it's just God, but in chapter 2, it's the Lord God. Do you remember how we saw it, verse 4? When the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, and no shrub of the field had yet appeared on the earth, and no plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not sent rain. And you see it all the way through. Verse 7 there, the Lord God formed. Verse 8, verse 9, verse 15, 16, 18, 19, 21, 22, almost every verse, the Lord God. The covenant-making Covenant-keeping, relational God. Relationship with God is front and centre in the Garden of Eden. That's what makes Eden so special. That's what makes heaven, heaven, being with God. For I was created to be in relationship with him. But that's not how it is now. We don't enjoy that now. We long for that rest, but we don't have it. So we look for it in, in many places, in exotic holidays, in love, in our careers, in success, in, in striving to be accepted by others. We look for rest for our souls, but nothing quite satisfies us. And if you read the writings of C.S. Lewis, you'll see he's often dealing with this very issue for this search for rest. In mere Christianity, he puts it like this. Most people, if they really had learned to look into their own hearts, would know that they do want, and want acutely, something that cannot be had in this world. There are all sorts of things in this world that offer to give it to you, but they never quite keep their promise. So you see, we, we look for that missing thing in love, in happiness, in nature, in music, but those things can't deliver. Indeed, if we try to make the beauties of this world the answer we will always be disappointed. Here's how C.S. Lewis explained it in his essay, Weight of Glory. These things, uh, the beauty, the memory of our own past, these things are good images of what we really desire. 
But if they're mistaken for the thing itself, they turn into dumb idols, breaking the hearts of their worshippers. For they are not the thing itself. They are only the scent of a flower we've not found, the echo of a tune we've not heard, news from a country we've never visited. Hear Lewis's point? We long for something else and sometimes something can point to that something else, but it isn't it, it just points to it. We have longings then. The longings that arise in us when we first fall in love or first think of a foreign country or first take up some subject that excites us. But these are longings that no marriage and no travel and no learning will ever really satisfy because we are made for a very specific purpose for relationship with God. And so we are restless. And that restlessness comes about because we've cut ourselves off from God. And that, of course, is what we saw in chapter 3 as we've been studying it over these last three weeks. Where unbelievably Adam and Eve turned away from God, having been given so much and in enjoying such a wonderful existence in the garden with the relationship with God, unbelievably, they wanted to be God. They wanted to push God to one side. They wanted to be kingpin. They wanted to run their own lives their own way and they wanted to sing along with Frank Sinatra, as we put it, I, want, I did it my way. And in their rebellion, in our rebellion, we forfeit the place of life and blessing and have it replaced instead with death and curse. And so as we saw last week, the world is under a curse. Death is all around us. And now we live in this world in pain and sorrow with hostility and frustration surrounding us before finally we die. For we have been banished from the garden and from the tree of life and that's what we saw right at the end of chapter 3 last week. Chapter 3 verses 23 to 24. We are out of the garden, away from the tree of life, no longer in perfect relationship with our God. Now do you see how chapters 1 to 3 of Genesis explain the world we live in? How it explains this tension between great good and destructive evil that makes this world what it is. God made a good world and there are just glimpses of how good it is today. Because of mankind's rebellion there's also pain and agony. And we not only feel it as we look at Japan and Libya, we see that tension in our own lives today as I've already alluded to. Uh, You see Genesis chapter 1 verses 26 to 28 tells us that we were made in God's image. So here we all are, made in the image of God with such potential to to be so good, to spread life and blessing all over the world and yet now, now there is no area of our lives that is not affected by sin. The image of God in us is marred and so we are this complex mix with the potential for good and beauty but with this constant bias towards evil and ugliness. The first three chapters of the Bible give us a brilliant explanation as to why the world is as it is and why we are as we are. And so as we arrived at the end of chapter 3 last week, the whole Bible could have ended at that point, could have been the end of it. Of course, had it ended there, it would never have become the world's bestseller that it is. Three chapters hardly makes a book. But even if the Bible had ended at chapter 3, it still would have been a thoroughly accurate, satisfactory and sufficient explanation for life as we know it. Here in these first three chapters we have a world view that describes the world as it is. Nothing more needs to be said. All the loose ends are tied up. 
or except for one. Turn with me to Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15. Finally, we get to the verse we're supposed to be studying uh, this morning. That's a long introduction, but don't worry, I'm not going to spend as long from the rest of the sermon. Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15, and I'll begin to read from verse 14, but verse 15 is our key verse this morning. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all the livestock and all the wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you'll eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Here is why the Bible doesn't stop at the end of Genesis chapter 3. This verse speaks of a battle, an enormous spiritual battle, something we all know about just in part in our own lives. This verse tells us there will be hostility, enmity between the snake and even her offspring. This is a battle then that is going to extend beyond Adam and Eve. Now crucially see here in the footnote that the word offspring in verse 15 is the word seed. And see too that it's singular. Now that tells us that one of Eve's offspring will, verse 15, crush the snake. The snake will bite back, striking the heel of this one. The serpent will be crushed. Now that's God's promise here. He says that the snake that has brought so much death and destruction into our world, the snake is going to be crushed, defeated. And the woman is to look not to her husband to be the one who will crush the snake, but to a son who's yet to be born, a son who will deal with the problem of evil in the world. And we don't have long uh, for that. We, don't, we, we, don't, don't we, we just long for that, don't we, as we look at the struggle in our lives, when we see all the, all the gunk in our lives. Don't you at times despair at yourself as you, you try to live the way you know you should, the way you want to, and yet you see all this rubbish in your life? Don't you despair? And don't we long for, for this to come true when we see the destruction in the world, the devastation that we've seen in these last weeks as we've watched our, 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 the news and, and read our newspapers? This verse speaks of a hope for the future and that's what the Bible, why the Bible doesn't end at chapter 3. The Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, even at the very point of mankind's great rebellion against God, the Lord speaks a word of promise, the gospel word of hope. And so from this moment on, the plot line of the Bible is the search for the one who would be born of a woman, the one who would crush the serpent. This should help us to know how to read our Bibles. We're waiting for this one, and so the very next thing that happens, the next thing that is recorded in the Bible after chapter 3 is that Eve produces two sons. And that's why Eve cries out as she does in chapter, one, chapter 4 and verse 1. Do you see it there? She gives birth, and she said, With the help of the Lord I've, given, I've brought forth a man. Or as the footnotes suggest, I've brought forth the man. See, as Cain is born, remembering the promise to Eve, we're wondering if Cain is the one who will crush the serpent. And as we read on, we see this man, Cain, is indeed a co uh, in a contest, in conflict with the serpent. Look at chapter 4, verse 6. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, you'll not be accept will you not be accepted? 
But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must master it. There's the struggle with sin that we all know. Sin crouching at your door, trying to grab you. Of course, we know that Cain failed to do what is right, as it says here. Cain failed to overcome what was crouching at his door. Cain killed his brother Abel. And so at the end of the chapter, we see uh, that judgment coming upon him. And in chapter 4, verse 16, devastatingly, Cain is moving further still away from the Lord. So it becomes clear very quickly that Cain and his descendants are not going to deal with the serpent. They're not following, they are following in, in Adam's footsteps. And so Adam and Eve look to their third son, Seth. Look in chapter 5, verse 3, we read this. When Adam had lived 130 years, he had a son in his own likeness, in his own image, and he named him Seth. Now, there's always great excitement at the birth of a child, isn't there? And sometimes when a new one is born, there are hopes for the child to grow up and do something special, do all the things that I couldn't do. I'm looking to that one to do it. Never has that been more true than when Seth was born. All Adam and Eve's hopes are pinned on this son, fulfilling their dreams and taking them back to the promised land. They're hoping that he's going to be the one to deal with the serpent. And so from this point on in the book of Genesis, we follow Seth's line. But before we move on, see the language there in verse 3. Seth is born in Adam's own likeness, in his own image. Now that's language we're familiar with in the book of Genesis, isn't it? First we saw it in chapter 1, verses 26 to 28, and we're reminded of it, we're told we're supposed to remember it by chapter 5, verse 2. Remember when God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. He created them male and female and blessed them. Mankind was created in God's likeness, in his own image, but now, verse 3, Seth bears the image of Adam. And Adam has rebelled against God. And that's what we see in the genealogy that follows. Seth has sons who have sons who have sons, but they all die. They're all in the image of Adam. They're all under the curse of death. Still, as we read through the genealogy of Seth's line, all the time we're looking for the one, the son, who will enter into conflict with the serpent. But none do. They they just die. It seems that no one can overcome the works of the devil. Well, there is one who looks very promising. His name is Enoch. He appears in chapter 5, verse 24. Enoch walked with God, we read. And he didn't die, verse 24. God just took him away. What a lovely way to go. Now, he didn't die, but he didn't enter into conflict with the serpent either. He is neither bruised by the snake, nor does he crush it. And so the search continues. When Noah is born, in verse 28, look, when Lamech had lived 182 years, he had a son, He named him Noah and said, He will comfort us in the labour and painful toil of our hands caused by the ground the Lord has cursed. These are big words. And the way Noah's birth is announced suggests he's the one. There's a suggestion here that he can do something about the curse, that he'll deal with the problem of living in a fallen world. And Noah did save humanity through the ark. And after the deluge of water that flooded the world, the world starts again, all washed clean, all shiny and new by the waters of the flood. And we think that Noah just might be the one to crush the serpent. But just as we think Noah might be the one, he goes and gets drunk and he acts disgracefully. And so we begin to see that Noah's not the serpent crusher. 
And our search continues until at the end of chapter 11 and beginning chapter 12, we're introduced to a childless man called Abram. Abram, Abram, his his name means father, yet he had no children. What a way for him to have to go through life, don't you think? Imagine people meeting Abram on the road and saying, hello, what's your name? He'd reply, father. And they'd say, oh, how many children do you have? Oh, I don't have any. His name is father, but he has no children. And to make it worse, later God renames him Abraham, which means father of many. He goes from being daddy to to being big daddy as he wanders the world childless. But this is a key point in Genesis and in salvation history of the world. Look at the promise to Abram in chapter 12 and verse 1 and look for the language that should ring bells for us. The Lord said to Abram, Leave your country, your people and your father's household and go to the land I'll show you. I'll make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I'll make your name great and you'll be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you I will curse and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Do you see this language of blessing and curse? Reminds us of Genesis chapter 3. We should do. Reminds us that we're looking for the one who will crush the serpent. And then look on to Genesis chapter 12 and verse 7. The Lord appeared to Abram and said, to your offspring I will give this land. There's our word, offspring. You'll see in the footnote it's the word seed. A reminder again of the promise of Genesis chapter 3 verse 15. And so at the end of verse 3 of chapter 12 we read, all peoples on earth will be blessed, not cursed, through Abram's seed. But he had no children. And so an important point is being made. The one we're looking for The one who would come, who would uh, deal with the serpent, uh, would come not through a natural birth, but through a supernatural birth. And those of you who've read your Bibles will know what follows. Abraham tries to have sons other ways. He tries to do it his own way. In chapter 15, Abraham adopts Eliezer of Damascus and God says, no, no, he's not the one. Then Abraham has a son through his slave woman, Hagar. Ishmael is born and God says, no, he's not the one. So when the son is finally born, we know it's a supernatural birth. Because when Abram and and Sarah finally had Isaac, the Bible says they were so old they were as good as dead. What a way to describe a couple. God brings life from the dead. That's the point. And we see that in what happens next. God asks Abraham to sacrifice his one and only son. Listen to the language. His one and only son, the son of the promise. And as Abraham obeys God, God resurrects the son from the dead. That's what the Bible says actually happened by providing a substitute. But even after all that, it turns out that Isaac is not the one. Because all that Isaac did was have sons. He had Jacob who changed his name to Israel and Israel had 12 sons and none of them crushed the serpent. But listen, listen to this. Although neither Isaac nor Jacob nor any of his sons were the one, still the events of their lives tell us that the one who would crush the serpent was to be born supernaturally, that he would be a a, a substitutionary sacrifice, who would be resurrected from the dead. And so as the history of the Bible continues, we, we begin to build up a picture of the one who was to come to crush the serpent. And by the time we reach the New Testament, we're looking for an Israelite from the tribe of Judah, from the family of David, who would rule the world through suffering at the hands of his enemies. 
And so turn with me please to Galatians chapter 4 and verse 4. Page 1170, as we're very, very quickly drawing to a close from our epic journey through virtually the whole Bible this morning. Galatians chapter 4 and verse 4, page 1170. Galatians 4 verse 4, but when the time had fully come, I love that, when the time had come, it's been a long time coming, all the pages of the Bible, the years of salvation history from Adam onwards, we kept looking for the one, we've only done Genesis this morning, not even all of that in detail, we've been waiting for the one who'd been born of a woman, verse 4, but when the time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under law, that we might receive the full rights of sons. Now that the one has come, the one who would take us back into God's family, and his was a supernatural birth. Verse 4, God's son becomes the woman's son. Fully God, fully human. And just cast your eye back across the page to Galatians chapter 3 and verse 16. The promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. There's our word. The scripture does not say and to seeds, meaning many people, but to your seed, meaning one person who is Christ. And then look up to verse 13, the verse that we looked at very briefly last time. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it's written, cursed is everyone who's hung on a tree. Do you see the fulfilment of the promise here? Jesus Christ, the Son of God, born of a woman, the seed of Abraham, come to crush the serpent and deal with death and the curse. Through his sacrificial death on a cross, on a tree, he came to deal with the effects of sin. For centuries, centuries, God gave these promises so that when the man came, we'd recognise him. He came to do battle with the devil, to rescue us by overcoming the evil one. The devil brings only death and destruction and so Jesus was on a life and death mission, a cosmic battle for the souls of men and women and the redemption of the world. That's why Jesus began his public ministry by going into the desert to be tempted by the devil. Do you remember Luke chapter 4 and Matthew chapter 4? And he continued his battle with Satan through his life right up to his death. That's why there are exorcisms and healing and conflict and hostility throughout his life and ministry. For Satan was striking him, striking his heel, but Jesus crushed his head as Jesus was locked into deadly battle for the salvation of, of humanity. He rescued us by dying on a cross. He was the substitutionary sacrifice. He rose again from the dead. Defeating Satan and death and dealing with the curse, he came to bring life and blessing to all mankind. And as we look at the last book of the Bible, we see all the consequences of our rebellion dealt with. Turn with me, if you will, as we close to Revelation chapter 21 and 22. And if you've never seen this before, it should just join some of the dots together and bring you full circle. Page 1249, Revelation chapter 21. And look for the language that we've been so familiar with in Genesis Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. 
I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. Do you see the point? Now God and mankind are living together again. And verse 4, He will wipe away every tear, every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. No more death. The effects of the rebellion have gone. We're back in a place like Eden. It's not Eden, but it's like Eden. Like Eden, this place is full of gold and precious stones. Do you remember we saw that back in Genesis chapter 2? Here it is in chapter 21, verses 18 to 20. Gold and precious stones. And we see even more of it being like Eden when we go to chapter 22. And chapter 22, verse 1, where we read this, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life. Do you remember the river had been flowing through the garden? As clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, down the middle of this great, city of the, uh, this great street, street of the city. And on each side of the river stood the tree of life. We're back in the place of life. And the place of blessing, 4 verse 3, no longer will there be any curse. The curse has gone and blessing has come. Do you see it on the cross? Jesus dealt with all the consequences of our rebellion against him. On the cross, Jesus defeated Satan. I I can't resist, I wasn't going to do this, I can't resist it. Just flip back to uh, chapter 20, just so you see this final link. Chapter 20, on the cross Jesus defeated Satan. Look what it says in chapter 20, verse 2. He sees the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil, or Satan. And he bound him for a thousand years. And then look on to verse 10. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulphur, where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown. They will be tormented day and night forever and ever. On the cross Jesus defeated Satan. Through the cross, Jesus has brought us back into relationship with his Father. This is the fulfilment of the promise that those who follow him would one day be at rest, of eternal rest, eternal life with God. It's what every man and woman and boy and girl is looking for because it's what we're all made for. It's it's why there's this tension in the world, why we've got this great world but it's not great anymore and it's what we long for, for it to be sorted It's why the Bible didn't end at Genesis chapter 3 because God had made a promise to restore the world, to redeem mankind, to be in relationship with him and to get away, deal with Satan once and for all. It's the reason for life. It's the mission of God. And so for those of us who know this good news, who know why this world is a peculiar mix of good and evil, who know where to find the rest that everyone's looking for, we must tell everyone about Jesus the one who's defeated Satan and death and removed the curse and can bring us to the new creation where there is no more death or mourning or crying or pain and where we can be in the very presence of God and the Lamb who was slain for us, that they with us will be able to glory glory in the Redeemer forevermore. Let's stand as we sing.